Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Retroist. As I mentioned in other podcasts, as a kid growing up, I had a black and white television before I had a color television. And the thing about having that is that you only had eight, maybe nine channels tops. And since the volume of shows was much lower, you really focused on what was available and would often watch stuff that you might not necessarily want to watch at the time. For example... I used to stay up late at night watching TV, long after I was supposed to. I accomplished this by keeping the television really close to my bed, like literally eight, maybe nine inches away from my bed, and would keep the sound really low. Now, I knew t- some TVs had plugins where you could have the one weird earphone that you could stick in, but mine didn't, so I turned the volume real low and keep it close. And that late at night, you could either watch The Tonight Show, the news, or a late movie, or if you went higher up in the stations, you could catch a lot of older television. I would watch The Honeymooners, The Twilight Zone, Star Trek, but when those shows were repeats, I would switch around and stumble upon shows I didn't watch that often. Amongst those shows was The Outer Limits. I've always been more of a Twilight Zone fan than an Outer Limits fan, but I knew even then, and in retrospect, that comparing those two shows is like comparing apples and oranges. Sure, there's a little bit in common, maybe the theme, but the writing on the shows is so different. Even as a kid, I realized that the writing on The Outer Limits was something different than what I was seeing on other shows. And even though the volume of Outer Limits that I caught as a kid was much smaller, the episodes themselves stuck in my head much longer. And maybe that's a consequence of less volume. And believe me, I'm a big fan of diversity in entertainment, but I still find that the hundreds of options that I have every day and the scores of new shows that I have every season are really confusing. And it wasn't bad to have that more simplistic, less volumetric selection of television shows. Would I go back to that? No, I wouldn't want to go back to that. Just like I wouldn't want to go back to having a black and white television. But probably because of this lower selection, I was exposed to shows that I might not have watched at an early age and would not have come to enjoy as an adult. Because, say a couple of years later, which is the case, I'm watching late night television and there happens to be an Outer Limits on, and I go, oh, I remember this one. And then I watched it through an adult size and realized, this is an amazing show. I might not have got it all as a kid, but as a young adult, I really came to appreciate it. The Outer Limits was a great series, and we're going to talk about it today on the show. We're going to talk about its creation, its writers, its music, the production of the show. We'll talk about the reboot in the mid-90s that lasted for quite a few years. I'm happy to announce that Retroist team member Metagirl is finally back, this time with a list of the top five Outer Limits episodes. We have an information-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. We can change the focus to a soft blur or sharpen it to crystal clarity. 
For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind to the outer limits. Outer Limits is a science fiction anthology series that aired on ABC from 1963 to 1965 and would have a total of 49 episodes. Now, although there's a lot of parallels between it and the TV show The Twilight Zone, if you watch The Outer Limits, you'll see that it has definitely a more science fiction-y feel than The Twilight Zone overall and has less fantasy-style stories. I love both of those things, so both are great shows. We're going to talk about the original series first, and then we'll touch a little bit on the reboot of the show, which started in 95 on Showtime, and then moved to the Sci-Fi Channel. Now, The Twilight Zone and another show called Science Fiction Theater were doing real well, so The Outer Limits was definitely influenced by them. But it would get its own vibe, and much like those two shows, would become quite influential on later series. Originally, the series was to be called Please Stand By, but at the time the show was going on, there was a lot of worry that an interruption that would show up where something was called Please Stand By would scare the heck out of people. And remember, this is the time of like the Cuban Missile Crisis and all sorts of nuclear threats, so they decided to rename the show. The name Beyond Control was considered before the series creator, Leslie Stevens, decided to call it The Outer Limits. They made a few changes to the pilot, and it premiered in 1963 with an episode called The Galaxy Being. In season one, a lot of the episodes were written by the creator of the show, Stevens, and Joseph Stefano. Stefano had been the screenwriter for Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. He was sort of the creative guiding force in the first season, and would write more episodes than any other writers for the show. The first season would combine science fiction and horror, while the second season would drop a lot of the horror ideas and stick mostly to hard science fiction stories. Now, the horror part of it started when Stefano believed that you needed to put a monster in every episode, which is why I had a lot of sleepless nights after watching The Outer Limits. He referred to this story element as the bear. Stefano would leave after the first season, which would allow the writers in the show to drop that as a center plot element when developing stories. 
during the second season, you would get some really amazing writers, people like Robert Town, who was the screenwriter of Chinatown. He wrote the episode The Chameleon, which was the final episode of the first season. Another writer who you've probably heard of who did some work in the second season of The Outer Limits was Harlan Ellison. And Ellison wrote two especially notable second season episodes, The Demon with a Glass Hand and Soldier. And we'll talk a little bit about those two episodes and why they have a very important cultural influence on movies. During the first season of The Outer Limits, the music was provided by Dominic Frontier. He also was the production executive of the show. During the second season, the music was done by Harry Lubin. The music was wonderful, and ABC liked the background music from The Outer Limits so much that it used it in other series, almost note for note. It was used in The Fugitive and The Invaders. And here's a little bit of that great music. Now here's Metagirl. Five, four, three, two, one. Retro fans, oh how I've missed you. This is Metagirl bringing you the top five episodes from the television series The Outer Limits. At number five is season two, episode five, Demon with a Glass Hand. A man with a glass hand attempts to unravel the mystery of who he is. At number four is Season 1, Episode 6, The Man Who Was Never Born. An astronaut travels to the 23rd century, where he finds the Earth a blasted wasteland inhabited by monsters. At number three is Season 1, Episode 19, The Invisibles. A government agent infiltrates a secret organization known as the Invisibles, who attach parasites to the spinal cords of their victims, and in doing so, they hope to take over the world. At number two is Season 1, Episode 10, Nightmare. In a war action with the planet Ebon, some soldiers are captured, interrogated, and tortured. And the number one episode from The Outer Limits is... Season 1, Episode 33, The Chameleon. Soldiers investigating the crash of a UFO are massacred. An assassin, Louis Mace, is transformed into an alien so that he can infiltrate and kill the offenders. He finds out that the aliens are peaceful and only acted in self-defense. Louis then helps the remaining crewman repair his ship and leaves with him. And there you have it, the Retroist's top five episodes from The Outer Limits. Until next time, Louis fans, this has been Metagirl. Girl. <laughs>
Thanks, Metagirl. So a little bit of trivia about some of the episodes on the show. The final episode of the first season is called The Form of Things Unknown, and this was supposed to be a series pilot that Joseph Stefano was presenting to network. Sadly, it was rejected and was instead used as an episode of the series. In the episode The Architect of Fear, it's one of those bear episodes, the character who was monstrously altered was thought by some local stations to be way too frightening. And because of this, the creature's eyes were obscured on some prints that broadcasters used at the time. So some people never got to see the full effect of the monstrousness of the character. The last episode of the series is called The Probe and was originally aired on January 16, 1965. Because it was going to be the last episode, the normal closing of the show was obscured by an announcer stating that the King family show would be seen next week in this particular time period. So no one ever watching the show in its original run got to hear the regular closing of the show. It was only ever heard in reruns later or on home video or DVD. As I said earlier, the two particular episodes by Harlan Ellison were important in film. And that's because Ellison contended that the inspiration for James Cameron's Terminator came in part from his work on The Outer Limits. And the episodes that he was citing were Soldier and Demon with a Glass Hand. Soldier was based on a short story by Ellison called Soldier from Tomorrow, which sounds a little bit like what happened in Terminator. So they went to court and Cameron conceded the influence. Ellison was awarded money and an end credit mention in the Terminator. That end credit states that the creators of Terminator wish to acknowledge the works of Harlan Ellison. So a rare victory for a writer. The Outer Limits had a lot of great actors. Some who were just getting their start, others who had been working for years. Some great people who worked on The Outer Limits include Nick Adams from The Rebel, Ed Asner, Dabney Coleman, Eddie Albert from Green Acres, Robert Culp, Bruce Dern, James Dewan from Star Trek, Robert Duvall, Sally Kellerman, Martin Landau, Leonard Nimoy, Lloyd Nolan, Donald Pleasance, Cliff Robertson, Martin Sheen, and Adam West. What was great about Out of Limits is that they would use blacklisted actors, and for many of those actors, this was their first appearance in front of the camera in years. Amongst those who climbed off the blacklist and onto The Outer Limits was Jeff Corey, Marsha Hunt, Kirk Conway, Howard De Silva, and Sam Wanamaker. Now, as I mentioned earlier, it's hard to not compare The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits, and the shows do have a lot in common. They both had opening and closing narration in every episode. In The Twilight Zone, you had Serling in the Outer Limits, you had the control voice, which you heard at the beginning of the show, which was provided by Vic Perrin. The difference of the two shows was that the Twilight Zone employed whimsy often, or irony, while The Outer Limits was usually a straight action and suspense show. There would also be a difference in style in the show, the way the show was made. Now, this is a generalization over the course of the entire series. And of course, there would be a lot of overlap between the two series in both visual style and writing. But the visual style in The Outer Limits often borrowed from film noir or German expressionism. And I'm just speaking from experience. The show could be downright eerie, even with the sound off. Now, credit for this 
cinematography is often given to Conrad Hall, who would go on to win three Academy Awards and many, many more nominations in film. But there were also two other cinematographers on the show who don't get enough credit, and those are John Nicholas and Kenneth Peach. Besides the cinematography, you had some great monsters. Now the props and costumes were created by a loose-knit group of people who were organized under the name Project Unlimited. Members of that group included Hua Chang, Gene Warren, and Jim Danforth. The makeup on the show was provided by Fred B. Phillips and John Chambers. The Outer Limits had a real influence on the TV show Star Trek. Gene Roddenberry paid a lot of attention to what was going on at the Outer Limits and was often present in their studios. He hired a few Outer Limits alumni, amongst them Robert Justman and Hua Chang, to join the production of Star Trek. And a few of the monsters from The Outer Limits would appear in Star Trek later in the 60s. A prop head from Fun and Games was used to portray a Talosian. The moving carpet beast in the probe was later used as the Horta in The Devil in the Dark and was actually operated by the same actor. The effect that would be used to make the transporter work in Star Trek was actually first used in an episode of The Outer Limits called The Mutant, in which a projector beam shining through a container containing glitter in liquid suspension. The black mask from the Duplicate Man is used by the character Dr. Layton in The Conscious of the King, the kind of one where he's got one eye and half his face missing. The Megazoid from the episode The Duplicate Man is briefly seen near Captain Pike in the first Star Trek pilot, The Cage. There would be a little bit of cross-reference of the actors on the show, as I mentioned Leonard Nimoy appeared in The Outer Limits, as did James Doohan, but also William Shatner appeared in an episode called Cold Hands, Warm Heart, as an astronaut working on a Project Vulcan. Interesting. Now, the show fared rather poorly when it came out. Didn't do so well in the Nielsen ratings. However, the show gained quite a lot of fans amongst young people, and... Even nowadays, a lot of writers and people on television talk about how influential the show was on them. In fact, horror writer Stephen King calls it the best program of its type ever to run on network TV. The series ended when ABC executives moved it to Saturday nights in an attempt to steal viewers from the Jackie Gleason show. Now that's the official story. Some say that this is an example of a television network deliberately trying to kill a series by moving it to an inappropriate slot on their schedule. The show was never huge, but it did decently amongst younger viewers. During the second season, they moved it from Monday nights to 7.30 on Saturday, which, I have to agree, seems like a dead zone. Yet, at the same time, Jackie Gleason and his American Scene magazine was on, and that was very popular, so maybe not the dead zone it was supposed to be, but, but probably one that was established already for more adult viewing. Halfway through the second season, the series was pulled. In 2002, Mark Holcomb, who was writing for Salon.com, wrote that the Twilight Zone and Star Trek were more popular in that they played it safer. They didn't take the chances that The Outer Limits took. And he said, I quote, There, referring to The Twilight Zone and Star Trek, Human characters are fallible, impulsive creatures uniquely adept at screwing up. 
but every emotion, relationship, and deeply held conviction they display remains in place at the end of virtually every episode. However comforting this may have been, it tended to refute the everyday experience of the viewing audience. The Outer Limits wouldn't or couldn't cater to such needs. Stevens and Stefano had something much less conciliatory in mind for their show, and thus set it squarely in a universe ruled by labyrinthine pressure and transient pleasures, where meaning and morality were in constant flux and human beings fought desperately, sometimes heroically, to keep pace. This starkly recognizable yet distinctly off-kilter milieu made The Outer Limits television's most unabashedly modernist work. Now, while I am a big Star Trek and a big Twilight Zone fan, I could not have put it better myself. The Outer Limits is complicated and interesting on many levels, but it is also on a completely different plateau than other shows. Good or bad, that's what it was, and that's what it still is. The show was first released on DVD in 2002, with Season 1, all 32 episodes released. In 2003, the complete Season 2 was released. In 2008, a complete series was released with all 49 episodes on it. If you want to get exposure to the Outer Limits original series, you don't actually need to run out and buy the DVDs right away. The first 32 episodes of the original series are available on Hulu. Now, while in the 1980s there was a reboot of The Twilight Zone, there was also an attempt to get The Outer Limits rebooted. Now, that didn't go as well as The Twilight Zone. It took over a decade before it would finally make a comeback, and it would premiere in 1995 on Showtime and would run for many years until finally moving to the Sci-Fi Channel. On the Sci-Fi Channel, it would remain in production until 2002 before finally being canceled after a total of 154 episodes, which is far more than the original incarnation of the show. Right off the bat, this new show distanced itself from the monster mandate of season one of the original series and would stick more with the straight-up science fiction. This new series was filmed on location in Vancouver, British Columbia, and it used stories by Harlan Ellison, E.A. Van Voigt, Yando Binder, Larry Niven, Richard Matheson, Stephen King and James Patrick Kelly, and some of the original episodes from the 1960s series were remade as well. When it was on Showtime, the show was much more violent and contained adult content, including some nudity. In syndication, obviously, a lot of those scenes were edited. A lot of great actors would come to work on this new series, including Bo Bridges, Neil Patrick Harris, Mark Hamill, Pat Morita, Leonard Nimoy, appearing on both series, Ali Sheedy, Molly Ringwald, and Brent Spiner. So a new Star Trek person going to work on a new version of The Outer Limits. This series is completely available on Hulu to watch. Great show to catch. But if you want to own it, Season 1 was released on DVD in 2005. Why did I decide to talk about The Outer Limits this week? I wanted to talk about it because it's a show that doesn't seem to get the respect that it deserves. Is it in my top five shows of all time? No, it isn't. I like The Twilight Zone better, and I like Star Trek better, but I really respect The Outer Limits. The show is extremely well-written, and I find it a real treat to catch the show on television nowadays or to watch it streaming, because there's a lot of things that as a kid I missed. I hope that more people will check it out and enjoy a show that might have come in second 
to the Twilight Zone, but is certainly not second-rate. Until next week at this same time, when the control voice will take you to the outer limits. We now return control of your television set to you. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Facebook. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist and facebook.com slash retroist. Thanks to Metagirl for another great top five list. I'm glad to have her back and hope to see some other Retroist cast members rejoining us soon. Thanks to Peachy for putting together the music you hear during the show. If you want more info about Peachy, you can email him at peachy at retroist.com. If you'd like to talk about The Outer Limits or any other television shows, drop by the Retroist Forum at www.retroist.com forum. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. Harlan Ellison went... What the... This has been a Retroist production. Goodbye.